0: Now, if, if you're here this morning, I would like for you to, to grab a Bible. If you didn't have one, maybe you can look around. We, we tried to place them strategically around the room. Now, you could grab one and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. It would be on 976 in the Bible that we've provided, page 976. Now, if you've been in church on an Easter Sunday morning, You've heard sermons about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's appropriate. And maybe you've heard sermons about why the resurrection is true, and that's appropriate. And you've heard sermons about the evidences and the proofs of why the resurrection must be true. The tomb was empty. His closest friends believed Him. You've heard these evidences, and those are all great, and we need to hear those. And I'm going to do something maybe a little bit different this morning, I'm going to do something simple, and I'm going to do something that's not out of the ordinary of what we do every single Sunday, is I'm going to try to explain a portion of the Bible so that we understand what the Bible says about the work of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just warn you, this may be disconcerting to you if you've never heard the Christian message before that this may be maybe for you a little bit uncomfortable especially in the beginning but my desire is to read what it says and explain it I don't think you come to church to hear the opinion of another man who is mortal and fallible I don't think you come to church to get that you can get that on the news you can get that online I hope you come to church to hear what God has to say. I hope you come to church to hear what the Word of God has for us. And that is my intention, is just to simply explain a portion of Scripture, I feel a sense of Urgency to do this. I am relieved that I don't have to make something up that's appealing to everyone. And so I can just go to what has already been said and explain it and trust that it is powerful, life changing, and that I have prayed and am praying and many have been praying that this morning would result in love for Jesus and perhaps salvation for sinners. So if you got a Bible, you picked one up, grab one, I would encourage you again to pick something up under your chair, one of those Bibles, and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, ver- verses one to nine we're going to look at, and we're going we're to read the section, and I'm just going to explain it. Let me read it to you. It goes like this: Verse one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I wonder if you thought a sermon like this you'd hear on Easter morning, where it's so obvious that this text is very blunt and straightforward about the reality of sin. And you could read it, and you see it kind of breaks up naturally into two sections. You got verses 1-3 to 3 that describe the walk of fallen humanity, describes the life of humanity apart from God and apart from Christ. It describes what it looks like before a person is trusting in Jesus and then in chapter 2 verse 4 to the end of that little section up to verse 10 there's a new breaking point where he describes God's work of salvation so we have the walk of man in verses 1 to 3 we have the work of God in Four to ten, And so those are really the two headings that I'm going to offer this morning on this Resurrection Sunday. I want us to look at who we are apart from Christ, who we were apart from Christ, what humanity is apart from Jesus, apart from a saving relationship with God. And I want to see what God does to save sinners. And, and again, like I said, these first verses might feel a little disconcerting. This might feel uncomfortable if you've not heard this before. And let me tell you that to get to the really good stuff, the joyful celebration that Christians have been celebrating for millennia, you actually have to go through the dark section of 1 through 3 in chapter 2. Let's look at verse 1 where we first are going to talk about the walk of man verse 1 he says and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked the writer the apostle paul when he is trying to find a word that will describe a person outside of salvation he uses the word dead they're physically alive their heart is beating their mind is working Blood is pulsating through their veins. They can talk. They can think. They can act. But in spiritual terms, they are dead. Spiritually dead. That is, what it means here is the soul is alienated from the life of God. They are separated from God. They do not have a relationship with the living God They are dead in their sin. Spiritually speaking, they cannot respond to God, His Word. They are unable to understand the things of the Spirit. They can understand some things intellectually. There are parts of them that understand the world as it truly is. But when it comes to spiritual realities, though their mind can get a grasp partially on it, their hearts cannot absorb it. It does not shape them who, for who they are. Think of the weightiness of this word. Paul could have used a number of words to decri- describe the spiritual condition of people apart from God. He could have said that they were blind. That would have been true. He would have been right. He could have said they're deaf. And that would have been true. He could have said they were crippled or lame or sick or lost or broken. He could have said that the, the people apart from God have made mistakes. And those all would have been true, but what the Bible tries to make clear is the gravity of the situation of people who are apart from God and the word He wants to use is not merely blind and not merely deaf or lame or broken or lost. What He wants to communicate is the weightiness of the sinful walk of man apart from God and the word He decides to use is dead. Which includes all the other things. That is to say that the beauties of God's holiness do not attract the person who's dead in their sins. The miseries of hell do not deter Him. The glory of Jesus Christ is not appealing to Him. The conviction of His own sins does not matter to Him. A dead soul does not respond to any of these great glorious realities that we find here revealed in the Bible. A dead soul responds to the glory of God The way an ant responds to a sunset. The way a blind man responds to the Sistine Chapel. You can hear about it, but you can't appreciate it. You can't understand it. You can't love it. It doesn't taste good. It might be able to be processed through the mind, but it is not able to be apprehended by the soul. The person without Christ, apart from God, is described as dead. Well, how are they dead? He goes on to say they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Trespass and sins, two words to convey the completeness of the sinfulness of the person who is outside of God. Uh, the word for sin has the idea of missing the mark. It's a, a word in Greek that was used to describe hunters who are looking to get their uh, they're looking to get a deer, they're looking to catch something, and when they go to take aim, they miss. And what he's describing, what the word sin means is that God has given us an arrow and a target that we need to hit, and he is describing our sinful nature as that being which we go in the opposite direction that God has wanted us to do to go in in other words the sin isn't merely defined as that thing that you did wrong or that word that you said that was not helpful sin is defined as that which you do not do that you should have done Romans 3:23 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God do you see the definition of sin there the 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 center or the core of sinfulness is that God created us for him to worship him to enjoy him and we all have fallen short of that glorious purpose this is how sin is framed it's it's not merely mistakes we've made it's that God has made us for himself And we have missed the mark, we have missed the purpose for which we were created. See, life apart from God isn't just a life of mistakes, it's a life of turning away from Him. In rebellion against His purposes, we refuse to give Him glory He deserves. And though there are people who are, in some sense, better than others, there are good people who try to do good things. No one can do all that God has required us to do. You can think of this analogy. If we all went to the beach and we we're going to say, all right, we're going to have a competition, Who's gonna, who can jump to Catalina? Alright, let's all line up and we're all gonna take a running start and, and, and I might run and I get a few feet out in the surf and someone can jump farther than me and they get out there and one of you is really smart and you get on a pier and you, you run as far and fast as you can at the end of the pier and you jump and you flail your arms and you try to get as far as you can. And how many of us are getting to Catalina? No one is. You know, some might have jumped a little bit farther, but this is the picture of any person who's trying to work their way back to God. We have fundamentally missed the mark, and there's nothing we can do to restore our own relationship with God. We, are, we have sinned that the glory of God was what we were made to do, and we have not done that. Jesus says in Matthew <laughs> chapter 5, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How are we doing on that? I mean, no one has come close. So he's describing who we are apart from God before Christ saved us, dead in our trespasses and sins. We have missed the mark. We walk in sin, always falling short of the perfect standard that God has given to all His people. And then go on to see what he says next, uh, the sins in which he once walked, following the course of this world. Dead fish don't swim upstream and spiritually dead souls don't fight against the course of this world they're going with the course of this world they're following the course of this world Uh, the, the idea of the course of this world is this idea of the spirit of the age the fads the things that are popular in culture the things that everybody else is valuing you value That's what it means to go with the course of the world. You don't stand the tide against the course of the world, standing on the solid ground of objective truth. What you actually do is just go with wherever culture goes. You follow the course of the world. The German word for this is the zeitgeist. The the, the feeling that this, this age gives us. We just go in with it. What this culture values, we value. What this culture does, we do. That's what it means to follow the course of the world. Spiritually dead people don't have any life in them to walk against the culture, to walk in the truth. And so they're going against the course of the world. Or sorry, they're going against the course of God. They're following the course of the world. And listen though, Paul doesn't stop here. It gets worse before it gets better and not only following the course of this world do you see it right there in your bibles following now a person the prince of the power of the air that's what the verse says the prince of the power of the air who's that it's another way of talking about the devil it's another way of talking about satan himself that behind the course of this world there's a mastermind there's an operator behind the scenes setting the agenda, setting those trends, setting those fads, uh, promoting ideologies. And these things are not morally neutral. The world and the the direction of the world and the current of the world are not morally neutral. Behind those ideas, behind those worldviews, behind those ideologies is an evil enemy against people who want to see them damned. That's what this is saying that behind them, behind the ideologies, is the prince of the power of the air. And that word power indicates a measure of authority, a measure of strength that he has, of influence. And this is the condition of fallen man. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They cannot understand and appreciate God the way He was meant to be understood and appreciated. They're walking this way. They're they're in this current of the world. Little do they know as they follow along, they're following the Piper Satan. And further, it goes on to say, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. All of us were this way. Every single one of us at one point in our lives were doing this. I was. I was dead in my sins. I was loving my sin. I was following the course of the world. I was following, I didn't know it, I was following Satan. The spirit that was at work and the sons of disobedience, we all live this way. Look at what it says. In the passions, passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. See, we, we couldn't say, the devil made me do it. Why? Because these were our passions too. We were just living according to our passions. And our passions were not to love God. They were not to worship Him. They were not to glorify Him the way He created us to. It was just to do our own thing. And we didn't know it, but what was going on is that we were following the devil into eternal destruction. We were following our desires, our body's desires, our mind's desires. This is the condition of fallen Man, we are against God. We are not following His directions. We do not like His law. We do not want to follow Him because we've got another Master who will lead us away from God. We all live this way. And so that's why the Bible speaks. Not merely that we need to be forgiven. It speaks of the reality that we need reconciliation think about that we need reconciliation to god what is reconciliation reconciliation is for people who are at war reconciliation is for people who are at odds and listen this is what the bible says you may not have expected to hear this on an easter sunday morning but this is what the bible says that those who are outside of christ are at Odds with God. Enemies of God. This is what James chapter 4, verse 4 says. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's what it says. And that if you have gone down this course into this current, following your own passions, your own desires, your own dreams, your own ambitions unwittingly, you have been following the course of the world which will lead you into following Satan. I want to ask you, who are you following? What goes into your mind as you make decisions in life? Do you make decisions according to the passions of the flesh for comfort, For ease for more money a better career or more power because this is what dead people do spiritually speaking they just go for the easiest path the path of least resistance following the course of the world they do not understand the danger they're in as they go in that direction they are captive three times over they are enamored by the world they are addicted to the flesh They want from the world that which only God can give. And this is who I was and this is who you were apart from Christ. But look at verse 3. We have to get even to the bottom and the darkest part here. Because of all this, We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You don't hear that word very often, do you? Wrath. You'll hear it, hopefully, when you come to church, if a church is opening up the Bible and preaching the gospel, because we must understand this, if we would ever understand the gospel, that the Bible teaches because of our sin because of our disobedience, because God has created us for Himself and we have turned away from Him, our natural disposition, the disposition we are born into, is underneath the anger of God. The righteous, good justice we are the criminals here. And God is the righteous and good judge. And when he sees people defying his holiness, defying his love, there is a settled anger against that. And that word in the Bible is called wrath. There is a settled determination to judge. And you and I are or were children of wrath. You didn't choose this when you were born this is what we were born into this is our natural condition by nature it says children of wrath i remember reading an old german scholar who wrote a book called what is christianity and in it he He wasn't really one that held to the authority of Scripture, but he was one that did his best to try to summarize all that the Bible taught about humanity's relationship with God. And he tried to summarize it in one kind of central tenet. And his central phrase that he used to describe God and humanity was the universal fatherhood of God. The only problem with his conclusion is that it's not what the Bible explicitly teaches. There's a sense in which God is the Father of all in the sense that He created everyone. But there's a very real sense in that God is the Father of those who trust His Son and those who do not trust His Son, God sees them through His anger. We were by nature children of wrath. You say, oh, well, that's how God is. Jesus would never say anything like that. Jesus spoke a different language. John chapter 8, verse 43 and verse 44 say the opposite. Jesus spoke this way. He was very clear that those people who did not trust the Father did not trust Him. You know, look at what He says. John eight forty-three and 44. Why do you not understand what they say? He says to these Pharisees. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear My Word. You are of your Father the devil, is what He says. Jesus said that? That's what Jesus said. You're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. Now, now fire and brimstone sermons are kind of out of style today, aren't they? But the Bible says this stuff, and I'm not as concerned with being in style as I'm concerned with being truthful to you. And if you showed up on a, to a church on an Easter Sunday, it would be a shame if I didn't just tell you what the Bible says about this stuff as hard as it is to hear. But this used to be the uniform message of the church. A couple hundred years ago, Jonathan Edwards preached this very idea in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is a great sermon. And it's actually as much as the title kind of scares people off, it's filled with so much hope. And we're going to get to the hope in a second, just hang on. But this is what Jonathan Edwards said. He said, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed for the present, and they increase more and more and rise higher and higher until an outlet is given. The longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course. Once it is let loose, children of wrath. That's what the Bible says. Right now, if you're not a Christian, you are still alive because divine mercy is holding you up. And at any moment, He could release you. He could let you go. And you would sink into eternity without a Savior. That could happen. That's what the Bible teaches. And it might be that you came in this morning and you're not a Christian. And you haven't trusted Christ. Could it be you? That this very morning, it is God who's keeping you alive by keeping the beating of your heart going and the breath in your lungs. But if He were to decide to take your life, you would be lost. You would be lost eternally. And the Bible's saying that this is the condition of every person. I would have perished if I died before Christ saved me. I would have died in my sins. I would have been punished eternally. I would have awoken the moment after I passed into an eternal hell. That's true. That's what the Bible says. And I want to ask you, what would happen to you if you were to die tonight? What would happen? It used to be that churches would have cemeteries built right next to where they gathered. That you could walk out from hearing a sermon and see a bunch of graves. You've maybe been to some of those old cemeteries, go to New England, you'll see them spotting the landscape. We don't like to be reminded of death anymore, so no one does that. the church did that so we would be reminded of the brevity of life and the finality of death but we are a culture that has tried in every possible way to banish the thought of death we're we're scared to death of death we don't want to talk about death we don't want to bring it up you will be accused of being morbid if you do but come on we're all gonna die (laughs) Right? Let's not deny it anymore. This is true. And what will happen when you do? Do you have a Savior? Are you under the wrath of God still? I want to make this clear just to drive this home even further that you and I, before Christ, we we had not only sinned against God's law. We'd broken His law. Yes, we had many times over, but we had sinned against his love. You say, what do you mean? What's the, what's the difference between sin against law and sin against love? Uh, imagine this with me. This will help us understand. Imagine you're driving through a residential area. You're going way too fast. You're not paying attention. You turn a corner. You hit a child. You kill him. Now, you broke the law. You were violating the laws of the road. You, you weren't paying attention. You were driving too fast. You, you, you did something against the law. And there are things that you would have to do to face the law, Right? You'd have some fines, I'm sure. You'd have some time. You'd be convicted of some felonies. There would be issues with the law in your life because you violated the law. And what you could do for violating the law was pay for your crime. You could go through whatever they asked you to do and given enough time, if you do the right things, you could be set free from paying for your crime. That's what it means to sin against the law. But what does it mean to sin against love? Imagine you go to the, the mother of the child. And you you go to that poor mother's house and you look into her tear-stained eyes and in that moment you know that sinning against the law is one thing. But sinning against love is an entirely different thing. I can satisfy the demands of the law. I can go through whatever regimen you want me to go through to get my license back, to get out of prison, to pay whatever fine. I can do that. But I can't do anything to fix my relationship with that mother. She's broken over this. I can't bring the child back to life. I can't work for it. I can't pay her amount of money. I can't do anything if I've sinned against love. There's only one way that the chasm is fixed between me and the one I've sinned against in that way. There's only one way that, that chasm is breached, that the relationship is fixed. It's this that she voluntarily reaches out to me and says, I forgive you. I show you mercy. You're forgiven. That's the only way. Friends, That is the only way we could ever be reconciled to God. Listen, we are dead in our sins apart from Him. We're following the enemy. We are going our own way. We're passionate about our sin. There is one way that we could be reconciled to God. And that's if God would reach down into this fallen creation and offer us a hand of mercy. This is the gospel. He has done just that. Look at verse 4. But God, I don't know if there are two words more glorious than this. Having lived in verses 1-3, to having felt the condemnation on my life, to hear now these sweet words that's like, like the dawn after a long, dark, cold night. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the second heading of the sermon. If you want to take notes, this is the work of God. The hero intervenes. God does that which we could never do for ourselves. He fixes the relationship through His Son, Jesus Christ. We were hell-bound, death-walking, God-hating, Satan-following, wrath-deserving rebels, but God. We couldn't save ourselves, but God. We were in the current of the world, but God. We were enslaved and addicted to our own sins. But God, salvation is entirely an act of God's grace. He gives it freely to anyone who trusts Him. You say, okay, what in the world would motivate God to be so kind to such enemies? You see it's right there. But God being rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. Well, why is He rich in mercy? Well, it goes on to say, He's rich in mercy. You see it right there? Because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we are dead in our trespasses, God loves The world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's love. And when that kind of love hits a sinner, it explodes in the mercy, in compassion, in grace. It's rich. you see that word? He's rich in this. This is great love. Abounding love. Overflowing love. Mega love. (laughs) He's not like a, a poor father dividing up little portions of grace rationing it out so everyone gets a little this is mercy bursting off the lid overflowing like a waterfall pouring out to anyone who receives it by faith and it comes to people who listen do not deserve it for one second look at verses 5 and 6 even when you're dead in your trespasses even when you're dead, it's not like you had to do something to earn this. It's not like you had to turn your life around and then become worthy of some kind of love. That's the point. It's grace. Grace is a gift. You can't earn it. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. And you may have wondered, what does any of this have to do with Easter morning? Wonder no more. Jesus is alive and do you see what it says right here he made us alive with him he united us to christ see the power follow this the power that raised jesus from the dead and just so you know what we hold to be true what the bible teaches we are saying that that was a physical bodily actual resurrection that happened in space and time Not a spiritual, mystical event. He actually did this. And the power that raised Him from the dead is the same power that makes sinners alive. And so, if you've ever wondered, can I change? Can I change my mind? Can I change my heart? Can I change my life? Am I forever doomed to follow the course of the world? The answer to that is no. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And being alive right now, freely offering forgiveness of sins in resurrection power to anyone who trusts Him, you can be transformed. That's what He's describing here. God made us alive together with Christ, raised us up in Christ. Salvation is the act of God where He takes the dead soul, unites it with the living, and resurrected Christ, so that in that union, all my debts become His. And he pays for them and all his riches become mine though I have not earned them maybe the best analogy is a a marriage I married Ashley all my student debt became hers and that car that she had became mine that's a sweet deal and in the gospel All the riches of Christ are yours. And all your debts are his. And that's why the cross matters, because he pays for your debts. That's why the resurrection matters, because in his resurrection, all his righteousness is credited to you. His resurrection becomes my resurrection. My spirit, now united with his resurrection, is raised to life. This is a full salvation. God's super, abounding, marvelous, stunning, matchless grace towards sinners who have not done anything to deserve it. They were dead. They couldn't deserve it. They were following Satan. They couldn't deserve it. They were God's enemies. Of course they didn't deserve it. And when they believe God is reconciling us to God. and Why, you say, this is, why would God do this? Look at verse 7. So that... I love, I love a so that when it's talking about God. Because it gives you a little, little window into what God is like. What is His heart? What moves Him? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace. What does God want to do? Why is He saving sinners? So that in age after age after age, He would lavish His riches upon undeserving sinners. Why? So that it would be evidence to all creation, all the universe, that God is gracious. That He saves sinners. And that as He holds up His redeemed church, He says, look at My wondrous mercy." Look at my wondrous grace. He is doing this so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Listen, it delights God. It gives God pleasure to show off the wonders of His mercy to people who don't deserve it. We had to live in verses 1-3 to for a little bit Or else we would never appreciate grace. If you've lived in one to three and you've felt the weight of guilt and shame and condemnation in your life, it may be that all that is doing is preparing you to have a depth of love for Jesus and a height of praise toward Him. Because you've understood the darkness and so you can appreciate the light this is so beautiful because it comes after the bad news and if you don't understand the bad news you you can't understand the good news of the gospel of God's grace We, we we sing the song everyone sings the song amazing grace how sweet the sound what's the next part that saved a what? A wretch. But, but, if you, but if you substitute that out, that saved an upstanding citizen like me. It's just not really compelling to sing. No one's gonna sing that. But the reason that song is always sung is because the people who are singing it understand the reality when they say wretch. They know that they were under condemnation deservedly. That God was righteously angry with their sin. That they were following the course of the world. That they were following after Satan and they didn't even know it. They were wretches. They were deserving of wrath. But God, in His amazing grace, sent His Son Jesus Christ to take it upon Himself to pay for their sins in full. To rise from the dead for their justification. So that the perfect righteousness that He accrued in His life would be gifted to them. This is amazing that God has done this. This is why Christians have been gathering on the Easter Sunday for hundreds of years and every Sunday in between for hundreds of years. Because they actually believe that Jesus was fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, though He had not for one second sinned. And He rose from the dead. He was God incarnate, and now being risen from the dead, He has all things in His hand, and He freely holds out mercy and pardon. And you might wonder, How does this come to me? How does this amazing salvation become mine? Could I ever know if I'm right with God? There are systems of belief that manipulate by trying to persuade that there is never certainty in in regard to your salvation. They always want a little bit of fear so that you'll work a little harder. You'll do a little more. You never quite know if you've done enough, so do a little more. There are religions that are built on that principle. That they tell you, just work a little harder. Just do a little more. And maybe at the end, you'll have done enough to get into heaven. And that is satanic. That is not the Gospel. Listen, how does this salvation come to me? Here it is. Look at it. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is God's gift to humanity. And humanity must respond with grace. or Sorry, with faith. Let's make that clear. Faith. That is, you must believe this to be true. It's not that you work harder and try to earn it. It's not that you do a little more, show up to the church a little more, do a little more disciplined study of the Bible. No, it's it's believe this. And if you actually believe this, your life just gets transformed. Look at what it says next, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one who's ever come to faith in Christ really can boast in their salvation. They just can't do it because it's all grace. You don't boast if you were following Satan. You don't boast if you're dead in your sin and the divine hand of grace reached out, made you alive and united with Christ in his resurrection. You don't boast. How does this salvation come to you? By faith alone. Apart from any works of the law. Apart from the merit that you can accrue in your life. Apart from your religious discipline. Apart from whatever religious upbringing you have had. Apart from any efforts to make yourself better before a holy God. God is so holy that all of your efforts are jumping off the pier trying to get to Catalina. You will not get there. It is only grace. And all you can do to get it is believe it. If you're you're not a Christian... I want to speak to you more directly right now. All the grace of God is being offered to you in this moment. It is being extended to you to get it. You must believe it. You must believe it all. Believe that you're dead without God. Believe that there's no other options. Believe that Satan wants to condemn you forever. Believe that you're under the righteous anger of God. Believe that you're guilty and you can't clean yourself. And then, believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. Believe He rose from the dead for you. That He conquered Satan, hell, sin, death for you. Believe it! Accept this by faith that it's all true. Gloriously true. Believe. Jesus loves to save sinners. Believe. And listen, go to sleep at rest tonight. Because your soul is saved. Do not play the game of always wondering, never knowing, trying to do a little more. Rest in the finished work of Christ. Because it's the grace of God that will save you, not the works of your own hands. Come to Jesus right now. Trust Him. And the moment you believe, the moment you believe death gives way to life, Your sin gives way to righteousness. You forsake Satan and you follow Jesus. You give up the world and you grab a hold of heaven. And you move out from God's righteous wrath against you into the never-ending stream of God's kindness that will be lavished upon you into the endless ages. And you will be able to sing full-heartedly what we sang before this sermon. And in Christ alone, no guilt in life no fear in death this is the power of christ in me from life's first cry to final breath jesus commands my destiny no power of hell no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of christ i stand you can know you can be certain if you trust in jesus christ I'm going to finish with what might be a difficult question. And I want you to be as honest with yourself as you can be. These verses divide humanity in two. They draw a line. Verses 1 to 3 represent one side of humanity over which the banner is hung, condemned. Condemned. And verses 4 to 9 represent the other side of humanity over which the banner flies forgiven and if you were to rightly evaluate your own life if you were to take a pen and write down which banner represents your Soul. Which would you write? Do you see yourself in verses 1 to 3? And if you're honest, you would have to start writing, condemn. I'm following the world. I'm following the passions of the flesh. I feel dead. Before you write that C, You don't have to. This moment, the hand of grace reaches out to you. This Easter, listen, Jesus is alive. He has been saving people for. Hundreds of years, and he will continue saving this very morning around the globe as his message is proclaimed. And before you consider yourself condemned, Jesus is alive. He has paid sin's penalty, he has risen from the dead, and he right now freely offers all of salvation, all of his righteousness, all of forgiveness of sins out to you. And what must you do? You just believe it and rejoice and a new word hangs over your life, you are forgiven. A child of God. Forever safe. And one day you will be welcomed into glory in a resurrected body that's like Jesus's. We're going to wrap this up. And I'd like Michael and Hans to come up and for the rest of you to bow your heads. And I want to just give you a moment of reflection before we sing our last song. If this text has helped you see where you are spiritually speaking, if you have noticed you're on the wrong side of humanity, I want to ask you to cry out to God in your heart right now by faith. To trust Jesus to be your forgiveness of sins. To have paid for your sins on the cross. To have Jesus to be your righteousness that's perfectly credited to your account as if it were yours. I want you to believe that you are now forgiven by trusting Him. And if you have already trusted Him, I want you to rejoice in your own Savior your new status as a child. So take a moment, reflect quietly in your own heart, and then we'll sing this last song.